Uh, this week, uh, we have as a guest um, Aaron and Carrie Craft and their kids. Uh, Aaron's a good friend of mine. Here's a story. So three years ago, I was very, uh, very brand new to, uh, to Northern Virginia and Kingstown. And uh, as, a, as any good church planner would do, I, sent, you know, I found out the, the local churches that were in the immediate area, the pastors I needed to get to know, and I created this beautiful letter. I mean, it was like, I had the right words. It was warm. It was a great greeting. It, it gave, you know, a, an understanding of who I was, and I was coming to, to partner with them in the gospel. There's like 14, at the time, there were 14 local churches here right in the midst of Kingstown. And, oh, by the way, I was also looking for a place for our church to meet. <laughs> so that was the real reason why I sent the letter out. But I also did want to get to, you know, in fellowship with the pastors here. And uh, I don't know, it was a little disappointing. Um, I only got replies from four, four pastors, four or 14. So that, was, that broke my heart a little bit. Um, Aaron wasn't the first, but he was the second person to contact me. And it was almost immediate. And, uh, I mean, just he warmed my heart by responding to, to me as a church planner. And um, that was the beginning of our relationship, and it's really uh, grown since then. Uh, Aaron is the former pastor of Franconia Baptist Church. Remember the big, the huge church, not the Mormons, the other side. On the corner of Franconi and Beulah, okay, he just gave up uh, leadership of that church, which he led for six, seven years, he and his family. Um, and so just huge undertaking. Of course, they have a school, just a lot going on in that facility. The very first time that uh, Aaron and I met, this is that, the, you know, he talked about his church. We talked about the, the reform faith. We talked about the gospel, all the people that we knew that we might have been connected through, uh, through, you know, uh, other people. But uh, then he started to unfold this, uh, this desire to be, uh, be a missionary and to one day go to Mexico and all that. And so that is coming to fruition, and we're going to be a part of it. And so that's why he's here. He's here as my friend. He's here as a local pastor. He's here to talk about um, being a missionary uh, and, and extending the gospel to people who don't know it in a pretty unique means. And so welcome, Transit. Welcome to Aaron Craft. Thanks, buddy. Uh, let's see if I can get this right. I haven't spent much time in Mexico yet, so I'm still working on my Spanish. Gracias por invitaros uh, a estar con, con usted esta mañana. Thank you so much for allowing us to be with you this morning. Uh, esta mi esposa, Carrie. This is my wife, Carrie. And our kids went off to be a part of your wonderful children's ministry this morning, which will allow all of us to focus a little bit more on the Word today. So we thank you for having that. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Transit, for being a part of our ministry. I'm just going to take one, maybe two minutes to give you a quick high-level overview of what God is calling us to do next in our ministry, and then we'll dedicate the majority of our time to the Word of God. Uh, God laid it upon our hearts uh, almost 10 years ago when our two children, Jonathan and Jackie, were adopted from the country of Guatemala to begin considering the possibility of how we might serve in Latin America. And over the years, God has just given us different ways of preparing. First, by leaving the technology industry here in Northern Virginia. I used to work for America Online out at Dulles to go down to Dallas, Texas to study, to learn how to uh, preach and teach the Word of God, and then to come back here and be the pastor at Franconia Baptist Church and be encouraged by brothers like Pastor Jeff. And then after all of that preparation process, uh, God has allowed us now to consider going to central Mexico where there is a seminary uh, that has similar teaching, similar preaching principles, similar doctrinal positions as 
the Transcend and Franconia Baptist Church, and we hope to train up men and women to serve the Lord uh, as pastors and ministry leaders throughout Mexico and throughout all of Latin America and really throughout the world because economic pressures, as you probably are familiar by watching the news, are forcing people from Latin American countries to go everywhere all over the world. And so as we train these individuals and we teach them how to uh, preach and, and search the riches of God's word, they then take that wherever God uh, moves them. Them. That's the primary ministry that God has called us to at Puebla Bible Seminary. Secondarily, we have a heart for those that are fatherless. Um, my wife, uh, get to know her. She's a wonderful woman. She uh, grew up, uh, her and her brother were both adopted at birth by uh, their parents, and then our two children were adopted. I, I could tell you all kinds of stories, but this is my favorite. On our second date, Second date, she says to me, how do you feel about adoption? And I'm thinking, this is the second date. <laughs> this, this woman is serious, right? So uh, I, I had, by God's providence, in my wallet, a picture of my second cousins who had been adopted from South Korea. And so I got my wallet out and I said, oh, I think it's great. You know, look, I got these pictures. They're not even my kids. But anyway, it got me a third date. And, and, and uh, we got married, and we knew that from the beginning uh, we would probably be uh, one day adopting children of our own, and Jonathan and Jackie were adopted from the country of Guatemala. We could tell you all about that, and if anybody's interested in international adoption or even as just adoption in general, we'd love to serve you by just answering questions at some point. Email us, talk to us, however you like. Go to lunch with us afterwards, whatever. Uh, but the country of Mexico has 1.6 million fatherless children. Uh, there's a lot of cultural reasons. There's a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of uh, immorality going on in the country. And then there's kind of a cultural um, stand against adopting other people's children. You have a pride of bloodline kind of a situation. And so it's not true of everybody. There's some great Christians down there that are adopting um, children, but it's not um, caught on in the way that it has kind of here in North America. It's also not a country that's open to international adoption. And so we hope that through the work at the seminary and also just by working with some of the children individually that um, God would work through us to see some of these children placed in homes where they could have forever parents who could love them, teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's just a little bit of what we hope to do. We are excited about doing this. We are excited about being your representatives, uh, about going for the transit to the foreign field and taking the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, if you want after the service is over, uh, on one of those tables outside, uh, there are, uh, pr that's our prayer card. Um, these are out there. Please feel free to take one. Stick it on the refrigerator. We say this is, um, you know, for your late night snacks. You can lift up Carrie and Aaron in prayer when all of a sudden you go to the refrigerator at two in the morning or something like that. God listens then too. Uh, there's also a clipboard out there where you can uh, sign up your name, your email address. If you want our printed newsletters. Uh, those come out about four times a year. Uh, just put down that information, and uh, we'd be more than happy uh, to have you praying with us and for us and for this ministry that God's called us to do. So thank you uh, for your role in supporting that. Let's now uh, turn to the Word of God. This morning, we are going to hear from the words of Jesus Christ from early on in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles, I will read for you verses 13 through 16, the salt and light passage. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. While you're turning there, Jesus is just getting started off 
with his sermon to the multitudes. He is preaching principally to his disciples who are sitting at his feet, but he is consciously aware of the multitudes of people that are hearing him and the words that he has to say to those who are his disciples. He has just finished the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who do this and blessed are those who do that. It's a description of the kingdom of God and what it will look like, both as it is being formed here on earth and as it will one day come in its fullness. And after that, after showing us what the kingdom will look like, he then says, now go be salt and light. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a light, a lamp under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that as we sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ and listen to his teachings to those first disciples, that we would consider what they might mean to us in our life how we can be salt and light here in this community, in Kingstown, Alexandria, Northern Virginia, the D.C. metro area, and even as the light of Christ spreads throughout the world to Mexico and all the rest of the countries. Encourage us, Lord. Open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to receive the teaching of the word of your Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we like to tell mission stories. Um, we like to tell stories about missionaries long before we felt the Lord calling us to be missionaries ourselves. We just find that when we teach those to our children, uh, that that's a great way of encouraging them and, and helping them to understand what it looks like to be one of these followers of Jesus Christ. One of the favorite stories that, that we talk about in our family devotions with our kids is about a man named Hudson Taylor. Has anybody here ever heard of Hudson Taylor? Yeah, some heads nodding, some hands going up. He was called by many people the father of modern missions. So the way that we do missions in the world today, he, uh, he went out and, and, and uh, developed many of those ideas and, and the practices and the philosophy of missions that we're using even today. He started the China Inland Mission, which is an organization that is still reaching people with the gospel today. His work continues to echo even hundreds of years after he died. One particular story that I love about Hudson Taylor and his work was a time after his death when the Chinese government recognized that he was having too great of an impact for Jesus Christ. And so they commissioned one of their uh, communist atheistic staff writers to produce a stilted biography about Taylor to kind of slander his name in such a way that they could undermine the effectiveness of the ministry of China Inland Mission. The thing was this, as this atheistic author began to do his research about who Taylor was and what he had been doing for Jesus Christ, he was impressed. He was impressed by Taylor's Christian character, 
by his godly life. And more and more, as the author did his work, he discovered that he was being changed. An atheist man who was at risk of losing his own life laid down his pen, renounced his atheism, risked everything for the sake of following Jesus Christ. What's tremendous to me is he did this on the testimony of a man who was no longer in this world. Let me ask you a serious question then. If Jesus Christ were to look out over a crowd of people, not unlike the one that he was speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount, would he, by virtue of your testimony, your life, be able to identify and recognize you as one of his, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple? As a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us to have an influence in the world, to make a difference, to take part in the ministry that begun when the Son of Man came into the world and was born of a virgin, but did not stop when he was crucified and even when he was resurrected. We're going to look at a passage this morning in the Sermon on the Mount in the Salt and Light passage that helps us to know and to see what that might look like. Let me just give you a little bit more background information on this, just in case it's been a while since you've been studying the Sermon on the Mount personally or as a church. It is probably the earliest recorded teaching that we have from Jesus, from his lips. It is by far the longest single teaching element in the Gospels that we have recorded from Jesus, and so that makes it special to us. It is also the the first thing that we have as a significant piece of, of, of preaching from our Lord before he goes off and does all of these other things. And so it really helps to set the stage and and explain the rest of his earthly ministry, our need for him and what he came to do for us. The sermon, as I said, begins with that series of blessing statements, oftentimes called the Beatitudes. If you grew up in the church, you may be familiar with that term, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted, and so on and so forth. That is what the kingdom of God will look like. It's encouraging. It's inspiring to us. But we are not brought these good news, these good words, to simply grab it, hold it, put it in our hearts someplace, and, and, and not, never use it. We're supposed to go someplace and do something with this. And that's what Jesus turns his attention to in chapter 5 in verses 13 to 16. It is a wonderful thing to be able to sit at the feet of our Lord, to be able to hear his teachings as those people did on that day, as they came out of his mouth. The text that we're looking at, the salt and light, breaks down into basically two principles, two metaphors, to be salt and to be light. But the question is, other than using those in some sort of Christianese, what does that mean for each and every one of us as we walk out of here, not just on Monday, but today, as you interact with the people in this community tomorrow, next week, and all of the days until Jesus takes you home or returns to bring his church into the fullness of his kingdom? So let's look at that to be the salt, to be the light, and why? For the glory of God. The first principle, taking it as the text does, says that we are supposed to be different. Verse 13. Let me read that again for you so that the words are ringing in your ears. We are supposed to be different. That may make you feel a little uncomfortable, but it's what Jesus is saying. 
Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to throw it out and to be trampled under other people's feet. This is one of those areas where having a little bit of background information of what was going on in the first century culturally brings this text back to life for us. So a couple of pieces of information here. First of all, most of us probably don't appreciate today just how valuable a commodity salt was in Jesus's day. In fact, if you go back even hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was ever born, you can find the word salt was theon in classical Greek. Theon, like theos, like theology, means God, or in this case, divine. They called this substance that we call salt divine because it was that powerful, that special, that important to them. Roman soldiers were often paid in bags of salt rather than coins. In other situations, salt was actually used to make a contract with someone. So two people would get together, they would discuss the particulars of the contract, and then at the end of the negotiation process, they would eat each eat a pinch of salt in order to show that the contract had been sealed. That's how important salt was. So here's the point. Something that we oftentimes think of as little more than a table condiment was a means of life in the first century in the ancient Near East. So that gives you a little bit of understanding when it comes to the significance. Why did Jesus pick salt to say, um, you are the salt of the world? There are also two different elements about salt, the nature of salt, that I think Jesus has in mind when he picks this particular symbol for us to consider. One is the peculiarity of salt, and the other is the preservative nature of salt. Let me talk about peculiarity first. Salt has a peculiar flavor, taste. It is different than anything else, right? We describe a food as salty, not salt as foodie, right? You can identify something as salt. Uh, God even made the human body to be able to do that. I'm not a great person when it comes to anatomy or biology and things along those lines, but I know that the, the tongue is divided in such a way that it has this ability to identify different kinds of flavors, sweetness. Well, salt is one of those things, so the body can actually distinguish it. There's something really important about that when you start thinking about what this means about your life with regard to Jesus Christ. I'm just going to say it now, and we'll unpack it later. You are, I am, supposed to be peculiar. That's not something that we're often comfortable with. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to be different, and yet that's what Jesus has in mind here. So, I wanted to understand a little bit more about what Jesus meant when he said, if salt has lost its taste, then how can it be restored? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how does salt lose its taste? How does something that is salt become not salt, something like that? And so this was another one of those areas where I did a little bit of research and I found out um, some helpful information about what was going on in, in the first century there. Has anybody been to Israel, to the Holy Land area? I have not yet. Um, Okay, great. Uh, we've got a couple here who've done that. Did you guys go down to uh, the Salt Sea? I don't know if when you were down there you noticed that in the Salt Sea area that the minerals tend to deposit themselves on the rocks uh, right around uh, the sea there. And so a lot of the rocks have this white kind of substance there. Well, that's where the people got their salt from. They would go down there and they would scrape this substance off and they would call that salt. Well, the thing is, is that sometimes there was a lot of other minerals in there in addition to salt. 
scientist, uh, Christian, uh, a scientist who is also Christian by the name of Deneen White did some study on this, and she found out that in some situations there was so little actual salt in the white powder that a damp breeze could kind of leach the salt out of it, and you're left with nothing but like white sand particles, which is not really good for the flavoring of food and, and the preservative aspect of it. So her conclusion was about this particular passage, what Jesus is talking about here is dilution. See, not everything that looks like salt is salt. Not everything that looks like a Christian is a Christian. Our lives, we can wear the t-shirts, right? We can wear the bracelets. I love the old Stephen Curtis Chapman song, What About the Change? What About the Difference? You know, I got the little Bible magnet on my refrigerator door. I got the fish sticker on the back of my car, and he goes on and on and on about this, and then he sings the chorus. What about the change? What about the difference, right? What about a life that is showing that I am following Jesus Christ? And that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. So in describing salt that has lost its saltiness, Jesus is metaphorically addressing that first idea of distinctiveness. If we become too diluted, then no one will distinguish us from the world that is around us. Think about how that could happen, right? Well, where are some ways where we might get our faith diluted? Well, the television that we bring into our lives, the movies that we watch. I love what somebody said about television not that long ago, right? You invite people into your home that you would never have over for dinner, right? All of these things tend to water us down. One way to think about it would be this, right? If I were to take a teaspoon of salt and I would put that mistakenly, uh, if I thought it was sugar and I grabbed a teaspoon of salt and I put it in my coffee and I stirred it up, you would know immediately, right? It would be distinctive. It would be peculiar, um, Not pleasant, but it makes the point. Now, what if one of you all here at this church who is blessed to own a swimming pool, right, at your house, invites the whole church over and we do a little experiment there and we take that same teaspoon of salt and we put it into a swimming pool behind your house? Not very distinctive. Can't really taste the amount of salt that's in there because it's diluted. There's so much water there that you can't identify the saltiness. And that's what happens far too often in our own Christian lives. And so we need to think about that, right? How am I identifiable to the people that are around me? Can they tell the difference between me and my Christian walk and everybody else, even those people in my offices and in my neighborhoods who may just be good people, good-natured? Do they know that the things that you do are because you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Our society does not encourage this kind of differential experience, right? Our our society wants to cut the long poles off. We learned at, at the earliest ages, back when we're in elementary school and middle school and high school, that sticking out is uncomfortable and undesirable. The problem is this. As Christians, we're going to have to learn or maybe relearn what it means to be salt and light in the world. Because the way that we have been trained our whole lives are to not stick out. But that is not going to make you the salt that Jesus asks you, commands us to be. It's getting harder and harder in America, as many of us probably would recognize, to maintain our Christian distinctives without facing some form of persecution, whether that's mild persecution or, in some cases, very significant persecution. I believe that God is giving Christians an opportunity to stand up and be counted, to show the world that we are different and we are so because of Jesus Christ. 
The question, the challenge is, where will you be on those days when the world says, blend in or stick out? How will you represent Jesus Christ? I'm praising God for the existence of the transit here in this community. I know Jeff well enough to know the things that this church values and, and the things that this church wants to see spread throughout this community. Praise God for this church. But there are a lot of churches today that won't even talk about things that are unpopular, that could potentially offend something. We had some friends of ours who had been members at Franconia Baptist Church, and then uh, the infinite wisdom of the U.S. Navy, right, you know, which moves many of you in and out of this area, the military, uh, moved them down to the Virginia Beach area. And so they started looking for a church down there, and they had got some convictions about some things they thought were important when they were with our church up here, and praise God for that. They walked into this church on, on one Sunday morning, and the pastor was preaching, and he was going along and just kind of without thinking about it, he said, and this is probably a good example of sin. And then he goes, oh! <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. All of a sudden, this guy said, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot. We agreed among our leadership that we're not going to talk about sin here. Because y'all might be offended if we talk about sin. There are many things that fall into the category of wanting me to rip my hair out. It is amazing that I have any hair today, right? And that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're mistakes, I think is what uh, he said. Oh, we'll, we'll just call them your mistakes. Wow. So all over the place, and sadly, even in the church, It is getting harder and harder to represent the distinctiveness, the salt of Jesus Christ. But I challenge you, do not let go of that. Friends, I hope you understand this, but if you don't, let me say it clearly for you today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It will offend those that are living in the darkness because the brightness of the light will be glaring to those living in the darkness. Those living in the darkness would rather stay in the darkness. They do not want to have their sin exposed. In fact, Peter says that the gospel is a stumbling block. It's a rock of offense. It's the only legitimate offense that we are ever allowed to put in front of another person. But the gospel will offend We need to know that. We need to understand that. And we need to stop acting in such a manner where we're so afraid of how people will respond that we just hide in the darkness ourselves. Talking about sin and the need for a savior, it will make you distinctive. It will separate you from those many churches today that will not do that and from all the false religions around the world who deny the truthfulness of that. Unconfessed sin in our lives also affects our saltiness. I've been a pastor long enough to have heard the conversation, something like this. Um, the pastor says, uh, or the deacon or the church leader, the elder, whomever says, brother or sister, I think that maybe there's this area in your life where you might be struggling. I just seem to see this particular thing, which is usually quickly followed by some version of mind your own business. And yet the light of Christ is darkened when the lens of Jesus, which is us, is smudged by our sinful behavior, making it harder to see the light. Far too often, we are more concerned in trying to either keep the peace and not rock the boat or not offend the person to not drive them away than we are about their own eternal salvation, life and death, eternally. I appreciate the 19th century Dutch Reformed missionary by the name of Andrew Murray. 
He was so committed to living a holy life that at the end of his life, his Christian influence had not only impacted that part of South Africa where he was called to serve, but his family that was all the way back in the Dutch region so that what was it? Uh, six sons became ministers of the gospel. Four daughters married pastors. Thirteen of the grandchildren became pastors or missionaries. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. It is not about going into full-time ministry that counts. That's not the point here. The idea is that the holiness in this man's life impacted those that were on the mission field, impacted his family, impacted his friends, and the echo of that is continuing to glorify God today, a hundred and something years later. Praise God. Much like Hudson Taylor. Whenever we baptize somebody back at Franconia Baptist Church, we like to ask them to share how it is that they came to faith in Christ. My favorite testimony is always this. You know what? There was something different about Pastor Jeff's life. I don't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. But when I saw it, I wanted to figure out what it was. And I, I think I know Jeff well to know that that's, that's probably been the case in the past in his life. That's the testimony We don't need to argue him into the kingdom of heaven. God's got that part handled. The Holy Spirit has the power to regenerate hearts. We need to live out holy lives so that we will be salt and light. That brings us to the metaphor of light, which verses 14 and 15, if you want to look at those again, say this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be silly. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all of the house. Let me unpack this metaphor for you a little bit. Light is biblical. It is used frequently throughout Scripture. It is used to describe the nature and the character of God. It says in uh, John, God is light, referring to his purity, to his holiness. Jesus is called the light of the world, which refers to his messianic ministry. Paul writes about the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. And so light is this good thing that brings life, that brings vibrance and thriving people. So when Jesus starts talking about light in verses 14 and 15, in a world that is filled with darkness, not just spiritually, but literally filled with darkness, no street lamps, right? No torches that are big enough to light the the paths, the roads in the evenings. This is something that is supposed to stick out to us. It'll, It'll grab people's attention. Think about that for a second. Wow. Now, let me ask you a question here. Look at verse um, 14 again. You are the light of the world. Let me ask you a question real quick here. This is, this is a good exercise. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. A plus. Now, look at verse 14 and read the whole thing again. Let me ask you another question. Who's the light of the world? We are. I probably went years without recognizing what Jesus was talking about there. You are the light of the world, Jesus says, as his disciples. He was not speaking to the multitudes. There were many in there who were not born again believers in Jesus Christ. He was speaking to his disciples. The multitudes overheard, and prayerfully, many of them gave their life to Christ as well. You are the light of the world. To understand the power of the metaphor, we need to understand, again, that 
that first century mentality, right? People didn't travel at night because why? It was dark at night. You would maybe be robbed. Even worse, you might be killed if you tried to go from city to city. Think about uh, the Good Samaritan. Far as I know, that was in the daylight and, and the guy got beat up, right? So for Jesus to tell us that we are the light of the world, that we are like a city set on a hill whose light can be seen radiating for miles, that is profound, He then goes on to say, if you cover that thing up, you would be a fool. Who would light a lamp and then put a basket over it? There's that great old book, whatever I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten, right? There's so many times where I find that that's true of Sunday school, like when we were this big, you know? Um, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine all the time. Let it shine. Hide it under a basket or bushel. No. I'm gonna let, and the kids, oh my goodness, the kids with our preschool up there, no, right? You know, they, no. When did we get from no to please don't hurt me, right? How did we forget what we were taught when we were three? But we have in many cases. The reason that you lit the lamp in the first place was so that you could put it on a stand and light as much space as possible. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit in the form of little tongues of fire that rested above the heads of the new believers. He sent the Holy Spirit on that first day in Pentecost as a light to the world to show the light that had come. The light metaphor conveys the same essential message as the salt metaphor to spread the gospel, but it looks at it from a slightly different perspective. Salt is preservative. It saves us, the salt of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It works from the inside out. Light, it shines light into darkness, and so it chases away the darkness. So between the salt and the light, working from the inside out and the outside in, we have all the room that God needs to change our lives and change the world if we will allow it. By its nature, the light is something that should not be hidden. The goal of light should be to chase away the darkness. And yet, as I read the headlines, more and more Christians seem to be wringing their hands, fearful that the end is at hand. And may well be, friends, I don't know, because God didn't share that with me. But it is not our job to be concerned about the volume of darkness that is in the world. It is our job to bring the light. Let me give an image of what that might look like. Got any Redskins fans in here? Couple. Right. <laughs> he was like tentatively putting his hands out there. We'll pray for you. Go to FedEx Field. I think I looked it up, 60-something thousand or something like that. Maybe more, maybe less. Fans can fit in there. I don't know how. Don't break the law. But somehow get in there at night and fill the whole stadium full of people. And then put one of those tiny little pin lights underneath of one of the seats and ask everybody to look under the seat and see if they have it. At two in the morning, exactly, tell the person that has that little bitty pin light to turn it on. Pitch black, no other light, 60 something thousand people, one person with a tiny little prick of light. What happens? Every eye in the stadium will immediately go to that point. You don't have to worry about how much darkness there is in the world, friends. You just have to bring the light. Will you bring the light? That's why Jesus teaches us with images like salt and light, because they help us to understand exactly what this would look like. The deeper the darkness, the brighter the light of Christ will cut through it. Our job is to just do that, bring the salt, bring the light 
Our relationship is a little bit like the relationship between the sun and the moon, right? At nighttime, just a couple of days ago, Friday, we were driving back from North Carolina from our missions training, and oh my goodness, did anybody see that moon? It was huge. It was beautiful. It started off red, and then it got yellow. It was just wonderful. But do you understand that the moon does not produce any light itself? The moon is only a reflection of the light of the sun when the sun is behind the world. We don't produce light. When Jesus says you are the light of the world, it's not because we have intrinsically within us light. We don't. We are a reflection of the light of Jesus Christ. That is what allows Jesus to say that we are the light. So reflect the light of Christ in this world today. When Jesus walked the earth, the light of the world walked directly among men. When Jesus returns, Revelation says we don't even need a sun anymore because the glory of God will give its light and its lamp is the Lamb. But in the meantime, dear friends, the transit, Christendom, Franconia Baptist Church, all the churches in this area, all of the Christians all over the world, we are the light. And so let us be a powerful reflection of Jesus Christ. Where do you do this? Everywhere you go, in everything you do. The first thing that you need to do is that if no one knows that you are shining the light of Jesus Christ, then it's not doing anybody any good. So make sure that people understand that you're not just a good person, that you're not just a thoughtful individual, that you do what you do because you love them because Jesus first loved you. Let me get to my last point here. This is not about us. This is about God. We are the salt. We are the light. We are different. We are the good news to give glory to God, which is made clear for us in verse 16, a verse that we could easily read past too quickly. Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, this is the purpose statement, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that, in the same way, so in the same way that you're supposed to be light, you are supposed to do good works so that it would give glory to your Father. That may not seem like something that you think about consciously very often, right? I'm doing this to give glory to God. But if we're not careful, we can get sucked into doing the things that we do for the attaboys, right? When those of you who come and set up all of this stuff early on Sunday morning do so, praise God for you. But just make sure that the reason you do it is to give glory to God, not so that somebody in the church would come alongside and pat you on the back and say, you're such a special person because you come an hour early. You know, when Pastor Jeff stands in the pulpit, I'm sure that he is asking God to judge his heart to make sure that the reason he does what he does is so that God would receive glory for his actions. When you go into your communities, when you serve your neighbors, when you help your coworkers, make sure that they know that you do so to give glory to God who is in heaven. Years ago, I owned a truck. What happens when you own a truck? Truck owners, people want to borrow it. What happens? They usually want your truck and they also want you to come along with it, right? So I'm working at AOL. I got this truck. I love my truck. I miss my truck. And every Saturday, somebody wanted to borrow the truck, and I would always go along with and help them move. I have moved so many washers and dryers and refrigerators, I just never want to do it again. And then one Sunday morning, this lady who was not a Christian, who sat a few cubicles over, came up to me and said, you are such a good person. Oh, Lord. God forgive me. She didn't know. I didn't want to get up on Saturday morning. I didn't, want to get, I didn't want to lend my truck out, and I definitely didn't go want to go along with the truck. I did it because I thought I was being the gospel. I did it because I thought I was giving glory to God. 
but because I wasn't talking about Jesus Christ, because she didn't know that I was a Christian, and she didn't know the motivations of my heart. She misunderstood, and I had stolen the glory of God. I was the good person, not God. Jesus clearly says the reason that we do what we do is to bring glory to God who is in heaven. Let me tell you this. Um, if you look up the word glorify, it means, quote, to influence someone's opinion about another person in order to enhance that person's reputation. To influence someone's opinion about another person in order to enhance that person's reputation. That is what we are called to do. What we do for other people is to enhance the reputation of not ourselves, but of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to glorify God. In anything and everything that you do in life, make sure that you are enhancing the reputation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Christian activity does not mean that we are necessarily doing things for the right reasons. We are supposed to shine the light of Christ private. We are not supposed to shine the light of Christ privately so that other people think that we are doing good things. We are supposed to do so publicly and that they know that we do this. That's how we are the city set on a hill. In those days, Jesus was the city set on a hill, but he has ascended. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father who is in heaven. And so now the transit is the city on a hill. Now, each and every one of you are the city set on a hill. If you're not sure how to do that, talk to the elders of the church. Talk to Pastor Jeff. Talk to one another. I am sure that God has many opportunities for you to be the city set on a hill. And, they, and, and people here in this church would love to help you get engaged and to do that. But don't just sit back with the knowledge that I'm supposed to do this. Take the action to actually get involved, get engaged, and live it out. So when the church sends out an email asking for church members to go and help with this or that, respond. When your brother or sister in Christ challenges you to get involved with something, do it. When the Holy Spirit lays it upon your heart, do not allow yourself to become hard. So whether it's in your home, your workplace, your neighborhood, or this church, do good works. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but we are called to do good works to bring glory to God who is in heaven, to enhance the reputation of Jesus Christ. I was moved by the story of Hudson Taylor. I am still moved by his testimony. The idea that the things that this man did, not for himself, but for the glory of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, could so move a communist, atheistic man to risk his own life and to become a follower of Jesus Christ is incredible to me. Jesus set the stage for what Taylor did hundreds of years before Hudson Taylor was born or died, right here in the Sermon on the Mount. And this then sets the stage for everything else that Jesus will talk about in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Before he talks about issues of holiness regarding anger, adultery, divorce, giving, praying, fasting, he says the reason why you do any of this is so that you can be salt and light. So, in conclusion, here's the question. Will you find a way to be salty this week? Will you shine the light of Jesus Christ even today? Will you commit to make the name of Jesus famous wherever you live and wherever you serve? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these valuable words that you have given to us, the disciples of Jesus Christ. May we embrace them. May we imbibe them. May we live them. 
so that we will be the salt of light that we were called to be, so that we would make a difference, so that people would come to know your glory. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.